Hello and welcome to 101 George Street, the podcast from Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My name is John Malloy and I invite you to spend the next 40 minutes with me exploring the worlds of creative learning, children's literature and storytelling. Our guest today is none other than Dr Michelle Vincent of the University of Glasgow. Originally hailing from the Reunion Island, Michelle works at the University's School of Interdisciplinary Studies and specialises in training student teachers in modern foreign languages. She also has an interest in world literature and storytelling. Michelle, thank you for joining us today. What's your favourite children's story and why? Right, um, I think that's quite a hard question and I don't think I can, you know, give you just one story, but I remember as a child, I had um, this collection of books, well, just a series that included Hansel and Gretel, The Little Match Girl, Goldilocks and Three Bears and Thumbelina. And I absolutely love these four books. Um, not just because I like the stories, but also because these books in particular were just, I, I just love them. And I think when it comes to children's stories, the form is also very important. Um, the, this, the, uh, they were not your typical drawings. They were little pictures of little sets that had been designed mm. uh, and they just transported me to a different world. So I think um, I, I really like the, the, these four stories, but I did have a preference in, to this day uh, for Hansel and Gretel. First of all, in this particular book, the, the, the um, gingerbread house was just amazing. You just wanted to eat it. But in terms of the content itself, uh, I always thought it was quite clever to try and leave a trail to, even though it didn't work, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also liked the fact that it was Gretel saving her brother and getting them out of the house and back to their father. So the fact that it was the little girl, you know, <laughs> mm. the savior, I think that just stuck with me. And that's why I always like the story quite a lot. I'm actually quite interested. I, I know you grew up in the Reunion Islands mm-hmm. and I'm interested. I, I have had a friend when I taught abroad who was also from the Reunion Islands. She used to tell me a little bit about the culture and about just generally growing up there. Were there any stories or children's stories that you, you listened to or, or were exposed to within that island? Yes, um, and in fact, but they were quite scary. <laughs> mm. One traditional um we, we have this, the Les Contes de Grand-Mère Cale. So it's like the, the stories of grand-mère means uh, grandmother. And she was this sort of witch uh, that was living near the, you, we have this very active volcano, Le Piton de la Fournaise. And uh, so she was said to eat children and fly around her brooms, her broomstick around. So uh, I can't say, I mean, I was very much exposed to these stories, but I can't say they were my favorite because they were a bit scary. <laughs> but it was nice to have, we did have our own uh, tales and folklore, uh, you know, which I was exposed to from, from a young age, yes. Excellent. And both stories, Hansel and Gretel and the, the folk stories in the Reunion yes. Islands feature a witch. Yes. <laughs> so it's, uh, it seems that it's, you know, a, a recurrent character across the world. <laughs> and and it, what, what I also liked is that we also had in the, um, the, the way that you tell stories in Reunion Island, there is a very way, to, a specific way to start that. So you always start by saying, Krike, krake, puts the, the, you know, it's the beginning of, of the story. Uh, when the storytellers start it, they always use this formula. And, and so the, the, there is a whole tradition around, you know, the art of folklore, which, which I very much like and I miss. And uh, probably I should 
I think it's a really good point because I should probably expose my own children to these a little bit more, but I don't think they will love the witch that much. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you actually say about the beginning words, the beginning storytelling word, because this is a reoccurring kind of theme throughout mm-hmm. globally. Um, yeah. I'm reminded of the first words in Saxon storytelling and epic poetry in Beowulf is so, they tend to say so, and then they go right. into the story. Uh-huh. And it's quite a common, particularly historically, it's quite a common thing where I suppose it, it harkens back to this idea of storytellers being shamans or being kind of like the witch doctor or the shamanic character in a village where you they needed to say something uh, kind of like a, it's a clicker clacker, kind of like a yeah. thing at the very start. This is the normal world. And then boom, now we're going into the story. Exactly. And yeah. That seems to be a universal thing that kind of reoccurs across cultures. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting indeed. Your work at the University of Glasgow puts you in a position where you teach future teachers about how to teach and convey a love of learning for modern foreign languages. How important do you feel foreign languages are in helping children access other cultures? And I'm, I'm reminded of a project that we did pre-COVID that the University of Glasgow did with Mowbray, where you guys came down to Mowbray and you worked with trainee teachers exploring world stories and world storytelling with the young children and pupils from the area so how important do you feel foreign languages are for helping children access cultures well it's crucially important so just to put it in context first i like to say that the, the reason why our student teachers have to learn a foreign language as part of their degree is that in scotland we have the one plus two policy on modern languages which require um um that you know foreign languages it, it's based on the european model uh, and so the one in one plus two refers to the native tongue of the, of the pupils. And so in Scotland, it will typically be English, but it doesn't have, for some pupils, it's not the case. Uh, and then two refers to two foreign languages that will be introduced in primary school. So the first one will be in P1 and the second one no later than P5. And the pupils will normally learn these languages all the way to secondary school. Um, and it's uh, interesting to see that the policy has three key aims, and one of them is global citizenship. Mm-hmm. So it clearly states that you know the aim is for pupils to enhance their understanding and enjoyment of other cultures through their own um, culture. Uh, sorry, uh, an understanding of both other cultures and their own culture, and also gain insights into other ways of thinking and other views of the world. And culture is a crucial part of learning a language. If not, it's just, you know, a series of rules and, and vocabulary words, and it's just not very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and indeed, so in the curriculum, there are specific cultural topics which are covered every year. Um, and I think that's really important because, you know, when they're young, uh, you want to foster an interest uh, into the lives of other children across the world and in our own children here, uh, because these children might um, live very far away, but they might have very similar interests even though they might do things slightly differently. And I think young children will be very curious about that. Um, I think at a young age, it's important to capitalize on what is called integrative motivation. So they're you know, learning a language for the sake of it, uh, not because it's useful in the future. Uh, and because children are naturally curious about uh, other children and, uh, and the world in general, um, it's important to try and overcome stereotypes with them by learning a culture better, not just, you know, I have so many times if you ask, so what do you think French people are like? Well, they eat snails. 
Uh, and that's always the first answer. And you just want to go beyond that, really. Um, mm. And so one really good way of uh, introducing a different culture is through language, but also through uh, storytelling. Um, you can uh, teach, um, I mean, the, the children at this, in, in primary school will love reading stories, listening to stories. So that's a great way to, to grab their attention. And the thing is that in Scotland, uh, a lot of the time, the languages which are taught in primary school tend to be French and Spanish. Um, you know, there's debate about whether these should always be the languages which are uh, picked, but that's a different, <laughs> a different conversation. But the bottom line is that these two languages are languages which are taught across the world. So Spanish is taught, spoken uh, across Latin America, minus Brazil, uh, and then French is spoken in many African countries. And so it's a great way by teaching them Spanish or French or both to teach them the culture of a variety of different countries, not just mainland Spain or mainland France, for example. So for example, you were re referring to the uh, projects that we did in Montbray. Um, so there was a group who uh, looked at the Day of the Dead, El Día de los Muertos, in Mexico. Um, it's quite a common, I mean, I think now it's, um, you know, a lot of pupils may be more or less familiar with this, but it's a great way to talk about you know, where Spanish is spoken and talk about a bit of Mexican culture. And you can do a bigger project about Mexico, not just talk about this. Um, if you have, I think there are many resources that are available to teachers and they can uh, look at African tales in some, you know, Francophone countries um, in Africa. So I think you can very much use stories to, to teach about different cultures across the world. Even if you just teach them one language, you can really explore many different cultures. Absolutely. And I know having taught abroad myself, the best way of accessing the imagination of a young child is through stories. And more often than not, they're more curious than you are at that age. And yes. they, they want to know why and they want to know how. And the idea, the idea that there's stories that they've never heard or crucially, mm -hmm. the stories that they may be aware of that aren't actually the stories that they think they're aware of, mm -hmm. um, always fascinates them. And or learning about uh, we go back to what you said about learning about cultures. The fact that, you know, look, take you for an example, you grew up in the Union Islands and your favourite story was Hansel and Gretel, which <laughs> from thousands of miles away, um, based around Germany and based around Holland. So this and idea... That, of that was part of the attraction as well, right? Because it's a different setting. I mean, for me, it's like seeing pictures of this magical woodlands or something that you didn't have. It's just, you know, so I think there is a strong potential there. Like if you have a story that takes place in a very different setting, you know, it can be very intriguing and the children want to know more. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that, you know, you painted a vision of the switch flying around an active, an active <laughs> volcano <laughs> at night, cackling and screaming away. That was incredible. I wanted to hear more about that story. <laughs> So, um, but that's interesting about human beings in general, I suppose. We empathize with each other through stories. And if you're able to talk to young people and teach them stories, different types of stories from across the world, and, and crucially give them a taste of those stories in their own language, I think that can only be a good thing. Yes, no, I, I completely agree. And hopefully we'll have the chance to do a bit, you know, other projects as well with, with Mowbray. For example, we discussed, I mean, Hopefully COVID will let us move on a little bit and do different things. But um, there was a, an idea where some of our student teachers can 
read different stories with uh, pupils from various schools, uh, maybe have like a day of storytelling or poetry so they can read, maybe not, they might not be able to read an entire story in French or in Spanish, but they can read a translated version and then learn some key um, sentences. So for example, if you think about Le Petit Prince, The Little Prince by uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, that's a very famous story that we all learn at school in, in France. Um, and, you know, you could teach them key sentences like dessine-moi un mouton, draw me a, a sheep, uh, and things, and they, they can act out the story, uh, they can learn more about the culture, they can, you know, or maybe like write their own poem using words from the different um, uh, languages that they will learn. So I think there's plenty of scope to really, um, you know, look through, learn, learn about the different cultures through storytelling. We can be a resource for that and a vehicle for that as Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. And um, we're always open to ideas and that little little bit of a, a spoiler for some of our, our listeners, but this is a project that we, we've talked about beforehand. Mm -hmm. then, co then COVID happened and the world changed, but we're hoping to kind of reconnect with this project because it's, it's one that we're both of us, I think, um, are really mm -hmm. excited about. Now, Michelle, I know you have an interest in online gaming and you see the potential for such platforms to enhance children's experience of language learning. Why is that? So just to be clear, uh, I'm what I, I have introduced in, in my courses, the language courses, is uh, technically called gamification, whereby, I mean, it's defined as the use of, of game design elements in non-game contexts. And gamification has been increasingly adopted in educational settings in order to enhance students' engagement and, and motivation. So there's no, I mean, in, I'll tell you a little bit more, but it's mainly uh, using little online games that, uh, um, in, in my, as part of my courses. And that's because when you learn a foreign language, you have to learn the grammar of that language. And this can be quite challenging for a lot of learners. Um, particularly if they've never been taught grammar very formally. And I know that there's a big difference between France or Spain and, and countries like Scotland or England uh, in terms of how you teach uh, grammar or, or if you don't teach it very much. Uh, so it, it can be quite hard for some students to arrive in the classroom and then you know, learn, learn a lot of, of new grammar rules, et cetera, a new foreign language. So, and, at this, and that can lead to a lack of motivation. So, that's problematic because motivation and metalinguistic awareness, language analytic abilities are key to foreign language learning. And therefore gamification is particularly interesting to explore in relation to this field. Um, so there are a number of advantages of gamification in foreign language learning, which have been reported, such as increased motivation, uh, student participation, more use of the target language, less anxiety uh, over expressing oneself in the target language. And therefore, last year I started to include some um, games in my uh, Spanish course, and I'm doing this French course this year to enhance students' experience of grammar learning uh, and hopefully increase their engagement and motivation. So what I did is uh, I used two types of uh, online games. One type was through our virtual learning uh, environment platform called Moodle where you could set up little quizzes such as, and you, you had like snake and ladders or millionaire, et cetera. So you have your questions and the students have to win the game by answering all questions correctly. Um, and, uh, but instead of just having a quiz in front of you, you have this game element, which makes it a little bit more engaging. Uh, and we also did in class, some competitive quizzes through, um, I mean, I use a tool called Kahoot, but there are various options. 
So you, you set up the quiz, you share it with the students and they use their phones to answer the questions and they have a time limit for each question. Um, and they both, I mean, I did a small pilot project, uh, but which was, I think, uh, gave me some really interesting uh, answers already for, for like a bigger scale project. So I did a small qualitative uh, study where I interviewed a few uh, students and I wanted to understand whether they, they thought that the games made grammar learning more enjoyable, if it motivated them to engage more with grammar, if it helped them better understand the grammatical concept and what type of games they really liked, uh, if they preferred one or the other. And it was really interesting to speak with them because um, the answer was generally they really enjoyed that. Uh, it made grammar learning more enjoyable and it helped them importantly understand some of the concepts better. And what I really also like to, to hear was that, I mean, they, they find both games very interesting uh, because if it's the individual one, they could just do that at their own pace as many times they wanted and it just sort of helped them to see where they needed to work. But they also really enjoy the competitive aspects of the quizzes in, in class. And, and one student uh, said, you know, we don't do enough competition in, at university. I really like that. And, you know, it could really enhance motivation. So I thought that was, you know, I want to do more of this and do a larger um, study about this and include as well other types of games, such as collaborative games, maybe like escape rooms where students sort of compete with another team, but they have to collaborate as well with each other to, um, to, to, to win the game. Um, so these are the types of things that I've, I've been exploring. Again, as a teacher and having known quite a few teachers in Europe and having known quite a few maths teachers at secondary mm -hmm. level, because a lot of math teachers tend to use maths is a really hard su subject to, mm -hmm. to teach. And so they tend to use online games or they tend to turn things into quizzes. They tend to use these kind of um, interactive games, usually in the classroom, not usually right. online. Um, as a way of kind of engaging the young person into the subject and it doesn't necessarily need to be mathematics it could be any subject really any subject yeah. where you're you're dealing with difficult um, underlining principles and if you're mm -hmm. teaching I, I, I'm guessing if you're teaching or you're trying to teach a foreign language to a young person it is difficult as you say there's there's different grammar there's different there's different rules to the language yeah. that you have to mm -hmm. kind of put across so employing an element of gaming bringing in elements of cooperation would be a really interesting one actually Michelle as is um, competition have you noticed that the technique or these techniques have been successful with young people well uh, I mean so far I have used these games with my own students so they are already you know around 18 years old or, or plus uh, so they they really like that but I, I think I mean for you know, school age pupils, so if you think about primary school, uh, I don't know if you could, first of all, you you know, if we're talking about grammar, you'd have to look at upper levels, um, but you could obviously have little quizzes like this for vocabulary learning and things with younger children as well, right? So, uh, because vocabulary is also quite daunting, you have to remember all these words, and, and so you need help, uh, maybe visual helps and games and things to assimilate your vocab. So in terms of grammar, I would say, I'm, I'm pretty sure that these type of games could be used with, you know, P6, P7 uh, pupils, and, and, and in fact, my aim, once I have, you know, more concrete uh, findings, would be to share my results with uh, primary school teachers to see how they can use these games in the classroom. Um, and I think, for example, Kahoot has been used in, in 
primary schools already, um, you know, they do these little quizzes for certain subjects. So the students will be familiar with the technology and you can do that. But I'm sure that, you know, young pupils would be quite happy to play a competitive game <laughs> and that would help. Mm. Um, now, the, the key question that someone may have would be, okay, what's the end result? Do they actually got to, you know, learn the grammar more? This is very difficult to measure um, in terms, you know, you can't easily compare two cohorts saying, did uh, this cohort this year do better with these games as compared to the previous one? But there are so many factors that come into play. But at least here, if, we ca if I can make my own students motivated, curious, about foreign languages, make them really interested because then they need to teach that to pupils later on when they become teachers. That's already a big success if, if they you know, instill an, an interest in, in the language because that's not always there when we start the year. <laughs> so I think that would already be a, a, a big success for me. Mm, mm, I'll, I'll be interested to see how that goes actually in terms of your research because um... Again, I'm a bit of a nerd, and <laughs> I, this leads on to uh, my next question. Do you think gaming – now, this is a hot topic in, in pedagogy. I know this is a hot topic in pedagogy, and it's a hot topic within an, any education system. It was a hot topic in Germany where I taught and, and England. But do you think gaming can be seen as storytelling, or can you do you think gaming could be seen as a means to convey something other than the fact that it's a game? Yeah, um, I mean, with respect to the particular games that I have done so far, I don't think you could say that, but I can see where you, you, it could come into play. So, for example, I mentioned the idea of, and this is hopefully something that I will be able to do next semester, um, which is the, the idea of introducing escape rooms. Um, because then, so you have students, and, and I've never, I'm very new to this. <laughs> I'm just starting reading about and then learning all about this. So I, uh, but for sure, I think you can have narrative-based challenges in escape rooms. Um, so, for example, you can uh, think of scenario where a student, students maybe have to read a story, understand that story, answer questions, the various types of questions on the story in order to progress to the next level and uh, eventually escape the room. Um, I'm sure you can also have scenarios, and I've briefly read about this um, recently, where you give students topics and they have to create a narrative themselves, um, so, you know, covering topics that we have covered in class, and they, they will have to create a narrative in order to escape the room. So I, I certainly can think of, you know, ways where gaming can be about storytelling, um, and this is certainly something I'm, I'm hoping to to you know apply uh, in the very near future. Absolutely, and I suppose. Um thinking in more broader terms the the exposing of japanese culture via gaming particularly role play games um to the western audience i'm thinking back in the 80s and the 90s mm -hmm. now uh where people were exposed to japanese culture and japanese words and japanese ways of doing things and, and the conventions of of storytelling which in itself is teaching a a, a culture it's, it's teaching particularly back then 
a mm-hmm. foreign culture. It did open a lot of doors for people. And, and you can see that's happening in China as well. Right. The younger people seem, at least to me, they seem to be developing much more of a global identity than perhaps in previous generations. In previous generations, it was very much, I'm from such and such place, this is where I'm from. Yeah. Or, you know, I, I identify as being a person from this city where young people seem to be a lot more interconnected across the globe. Uh, they have yes. friendship groups across multiple countries. Yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, this is not so much about storytelling anymore, but I re- recently saw a, a really interesting documentary about uh, K-pop <laughs> and how, in fact, there are hordes of fans across the world and how this, you know, just like in Korean music can just make you very interested in the entire culture altogether. And I, I think it's the, the, the same with, with uh, storytelling and how connecting um you know, young people across the world with different types of games, etc., can certainly, you know, um, open up uh, to so many many different uh, possibilities. No, that that's I, I completely agree with you. Do you think that teachers will be able to use the fact that young people are, are much more interconnected now mm-hmm. as in itself a teaching tool? Yes, I think. I mean, you can. Generally speaking, I think young pupils are very connected. They're always with their phone. I see a lot more laptops in my classrooms as well now. But and also, you know, and you, you have to, to, to teach uh, young people from primary school how to use uh, the technology. And I think it's, you know, it's sometimes you can be a little bit nervous at first about saying, okay, this it will just get distracted or anything. But I think there are many ways that you can efficiently use the the technology use that to, uh, for example, um, you can ask uh, pupils and students alike to do some research about different cultures while you're in the classroom or at home and then, you know, do some presentations. And it's a great way as well, if you do that, you can teach them how to find reliable um, sources. You know, uh, that's that's really important. You, you, we desperately need <laughs> people to be aware of what sources are reliable today. Okay, so I think uh, this is more than uh, ever an important topic. So, for example, teaching them, okay, you can use Wikipedia. It's usually a very useful tool, but, you know, there are sometimes some warnings there saying that, you know, this, I, I actually experienced that not, not so long ago that, you know, I, I read some very questionable definitions. I was looking at something about linguistics. Uh, and then I realized there was a warning at the top about the reliability of the source, or maybe sometimes it's incomplete because it's been just uh, very recently um, uh, written. So I think, you know, there are all these things that we can do with the, the, the pupils to really teach them how to use the media to do some research, to find the, the right facts in the right place. Um, and and you can use technology. Um, I mean, for example, in with uh, foreign languages, you can, when pupils are able to read a little bit more substantial texts in the foreign language, you can uh, ask them to read the news from different news websites across the world. You know, so if you do French, say, how do, uh, how is this topic uh, tackled in France? Is this the same perspective? Is this a sensationalist or is it less or is it, you know, so I think there are many ways that you can um, use the, the, the media and as a teaching tool for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some other ways of using their phones would be, you know, just 
look up for the vocabulary, look up for how to conjugate this verb. Look, up, I mean, there are so many things that, that you can uh, do. So they, they have their phone, their beloved phones, but they use them in, a, in an efficient way. <laughs> I think that could be a double-edged sword, Michelle. And I'm thinking back to one particular incident when I was teaching um, the International Baccalaureate to a group of international students over in Europe. And I was teaching a, a, young, a young man um, from mm-hmm. Spain, and he was having to write his major essay on a Russian theatre practitioner called Konstantin Stanislavski. Mm-hmm. And what he did, he was a native Spanish speaker, but he spoke fluent English. And what he did was he went on Wikipedia, as as a lot of people, um, a lot of students tend to go on Wikipedia, much to the chagrin of a lot of uh, teachers. And rather than write the essay, he he he. Mm-hmm. brought up the Spanish entry for Wiki, for this particular theatre practitioner on Wikipedia. He then printed it out, and then using the fact that he was a good translator, he knew English as well as Spanish, right. he translated from Spanish into English the exact Wikipedia essay. Right. Now, of course, that meant that any plagiarism searches didn't spot it because obviously the language was right. completely different, different wording. I managed to spot it, and at one, I mean, I had to like, obviously talk to his parents, because you know he was plagiarizing, but at the same time, the level of skill you have to do, <laughs> you have to show to to translate a article about a Russian theatre practitioner mm-hmm. from Spanish to English, and then try to pass it off as as yourself. I think he put more work in doing that than yes, you might have put in the right doing the actual essay. Well, I mean, to be fair, in at university level first of all you wouldn't want to have wikipedia as your source you couldn't use that as a reference okay so this is more for sort of general knowledge so if you're doing a little bit you know you're talking about a certain cultural topic in the language classroom you can ask you so maybe if you're in in primary secondary school you could use that to just get you know the, the the main the main bits and pieces if you want um obviously well at university you'll have to use academic um, journals and, and books, etc. So you would wouldn't and and here we would, I suppose you can if you want to cheat, <laughs> there's always a way, but it's very hard as well because you you um, they, they submit their essays through um, plagiarism tool that, that could spot you know if, if there are any issues. But sometimes it's very difficult to spot. I, I agree, and that can happen at several levels. But I think if anything, just the knowledge of saying okay, if you're trying to find something about you know maybe just making them aware of some main um, French websites, news websites, uh, Spanish or any language that you're studying, just, you know, going through that with them and teaching them the the, sort of the the basics will still be something quite, quite useful. How have you adapted your practice in the face of the COVID pandemic? Have you seen a shift in teaching practice? Um, well, I mean, obviously last year when we had to do everything online, there was a drastic change. Um, the key things, I mean, you would still get to see the students every week, but through Zoom. Uh, but also what we had to do was to uh, pre-record all our lectures. Um, so that was extremely time consuming. And then the online, the, the live classes were uh just for sort of seminars, questions, interactive activities, etc. Uh, the other massive challenge was that at least for the first semester, we were asked to uh, have everything ready by the beginning of the semester. So you can imagine our summers. <laughs> um, but, you know, it gave us a lot of uh, really good opportunities. So, for example, the pre-recorded lectures, 
uh, were really useful for a lot of students who can now, you know, at that point they could just view them in their own time, at their own pace, stop, rewatch, etc. So, in a way, there was uh, a double-edged sword in the sense that they sometimes spend a lot more time that we thought they were going to spend on the lecture because we didn't expect them to stop that much, take all the notes, etc. You have a tendency to want to note down everything, but um, I tried to tell them, look, I've, I've got a transcript on Word, just highlight things there instead of just stopping the, the whole time. But I think that was really useful for the students and this is something you want to see stay uh, in the future. And even for us, we can use that mm -hmm. to take the, the, uh, the time that we've got with the students can be used for more debate, discussions, questions and answers, that sort of things. And the lectures can be um, viewed in, in advance. Uh, so I think that's something that there was a good opportunity and something that should probably be staying um, for a lot of courses. We've also learned to make much better use of our virtual learning environment platforms, such as Moodle, uh, because it tended to be just, okay, just to share some files, but it's now, you know, more, we have all managed to integrate all sorts of activities to present them better, make them more appealing and, you know, easier to navigate, etc. So I think that that's going to be a big plus in the long term. We've discovered a variety of tools, technological tools that we can use to make students more engaged. We're more flexible because, you know, sometimes we can do a bit of both. And I think a blended approach generally will, will stay as well in the long term, uh, which was already the plan pre-COVID. But Zoom can give us access to more, for example, guest speakers. I had one for uh, a course in sociology of education last a couple of weeks ago, and the guest speaker was based in Glasgow, and I didn't have to ask them to come all the way down to Dumfries, and you know, and everybody could attend. Uh, so I think that really opens up some opportunities there um, for our courses. Sometimes it can also open up. Um, options for students. So for example, at the beginning of the semester this year, the University of Glasgow did a, a course called Transition to Glasgow that offered all new students the opportunity to do a sort of short two-week course to give them a flavor of what it would be like to study at uni. And that meant that um, the options from uh, the Gilmore the, uh, campus in Glasgow were open to our students and vice versa. We offered a really great um, elective on uh, the research that we do here on uh, sustainability, environment, health, that you know, 60 students uh, who are based in Glasgow could take. So I think you know, there are great things that, you know, that we can keep in, in the long term. Um, but there were obviously a number of disadvantages. Uh, so for example, online cannot replace face-to-face. -face, and I think a lot of students were really keen on getting back to the classroom. Um, we're not specialists in online courses, so what we did, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's different. Uh, we, we just provided some online options for, for some time, but it's a temporary solution. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, the idea of being in the classroom is, is a key aspect for both students and, and, and lecturers. Um, and, and in fact, I have to say, I thought my cohort this year, first year cohort, was particularly engaged and I don't know if it's after being locked for so long they were so happy to be back uh, or maybe it's just them um, and you know it's like I, I try to keep my teaching as interactive as possible on zoom but it's not the same so for especially for languages so for example uh, you can use breakout rooms in zoom so you can put people in small groups 
but um, you can ask them to participate through the chat, etc. But it's not the same because if I'm in one breakout room, I don't know what's going on in the other break breakout rooms. I don't know if students are on task. I can't hear what they're saying. If you know, when you're in the classroom, you can hear mistakes that you can pick up on and just give feedback immediately and say, look, I've heard a few of you say that. Uh, let's go through this. Or, you know, I can go around the groups and say, oh, there is an, a common issue here and, you know, we can uh, overcome that quickly. Um, you can't do that on, online. It's, it's a lot more difficult. Um, so, and maybe I would say as well that Zoom can be a little bit intimidating for some uh, students to take part. I mean, you can use the chat, which in a way can allow more students to participate, but, you know, in the language classroom, you want them to speak. You want to hear them, and that's not always easy. Um, and also for some students and maybe lecturers, uh, you know, that you're not always in the best environment. Uh, you might have noise, you might have children, you might have animals, you might have, you know, family, you know so it, it can be quite uh, difficult. So I think we had to face quite a few challenges, um, but we've, we've also learned quite a few things which are there to stay. Um, and so we'll, we'll just try to make the best of, of what we learned uh, during, during COVID. Michelle, what are your plans for the future? I think I would, well, first of all, I really want to um, expand my research on uh, gamification in foreign language classroom. So for example, adding different types of games, new games, collaborate with colleagues on that and getting uh, more, you know, doing a larger scale study and, and hopefully being able to share my findings with colleagues from primary, primary schools to see how we can also enhance language learning, both at university, but also in primary schools. Um, I would also like to explain the knowledge exchange activities uh, for pupils across the area. I mean, a, a very important aspect of um, being located at the School of Interdisciplinary Studies in Dumfries is that we want to um, have a positive impact in the wider community. And I think reaching out to um, pupils across the region, uh, well, starting with Dumfries, but you know, uh, pupils who might be from um, um, socio challenging socioeconomic backgrounds and to give them this opportunity to know more about foreign languages, uh, increase their cultural capital, being aware of you know, more the, the different cultures, different languages. And that can be you know, one way to achieve that is by working with Modbray and doing a variety of different activities uh, with Modbray, who's a great facilitator in reaching out to pupils uh, in Dumfries and, and beyond. And, um, you know, who has a great space to, you know, do days around storytelling, uh, poetry, all sorts of activities that can, you know, benefit the wider community. Absolutely, Michelle. And as I say, anything that we can do to help you, uh, the work that you're doing, uh, the University of Glasgow, uh, please, by all means, uh, that's why we're here. Great. Thank you very much, John. Well, that's your lot, folks. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review. I've been John Malloy and until next time, stay safe and stay creative.